You can find it on our website, uh, YouTube channel, Facebook page. It's all there. We've got audio on Apple Podcasts and Podbean and Spotify and all of that. So you can follow with us. If this is a book that's unfamiliar to you, I encourage you to get very familiar with it because I like to think of it as future hope that's found in the past. So many things that took place in that book 2,600 years ago that are relevant to our lives. We're in chapter 9 today, and I'm going to talk to you about a crisis of delay. A crisis of delay. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we did chapter 8, and in chapter 8, uh, we have this vision, if you remember, that Daniel had. And he sees a couple of animals. Now, remember in Daniel, you've got several dreams, visions with interpretations and all these things going on. And we saw in Daniel chapter 8, he has this vision of these animals that represent these kings and these kingdoms and future events for his time and even stretching into our time. And we see that the dream is actually or the vision is actually interpreted. It's actually explained, and we're told that one of these animals represents uh, uh, the Greeks and so on, and, and rising up from the Greeks will come this leader, Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, and the things that he will do to Jerusalem, and how the Greeks will defeat the Medo-Persian Empire, and we saw all of this in chapter 8. You can review it on your own there, but what's key to remember is the time. Because Daniel is a jumper. He jumps from time to time, from king to king, and he's very hard to follow when you get into 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. 1 to 6 are easy, but 7 to 12, it's like back to the future on steroids. I mean, he goes here and there, and if you don't know where he's going, you will be lost. You will miss the point. So... In chapter 8, the king is Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he married into uh, the, the, the family. Um, he's a kind of a co-regent with the king Nabonidus, who's not even mentioned in Daniel. But it's important for you to remember that Belshazzar is the last king that you will see before Babylon is taken out by the Medes and the Persians. Okay, so you remember the handwriting on the wall that happens there. The Babylonians are having this wild party and they're taking all of the stuff from the temple in Jerusalem and they're using it for this really kind of gross party and this hand comes on the wall and writes in the Aramaic language, right? And Daniel is able to explain what this is, means and what's going to happen. And that very night, Belshazzar and the, the Babylonians are taken out by the Medo-Persian Empire. So here in chapter 8, it is the third year of Belshazzar's reign. That's the beginning of his reign. He reigned for, I think, about a decade and a half. 539 is when the Medo-Persians would take out the Babylonians. Important for you to know that's not just boring history. Okay? So that's what happened in chapter 8. It's it's before the handwriting on the wall. And you get into chapter 9, and chapter 9 is a totally different time. 
The king there is the same king as chapter 6 of Daniel, and that is the introduction of the Medes and the Persians. So the story of Daniel and the lion's den, the Medes and the Persians have come in and taken control. Babylon has been defeated. The Medes and the Persians are in. And the Darius the Mede is mentioned as the king in uh, uh, Daniel chapter 6 and the whole thing with the lion's den, which we covered. But it's the same king, same time in this chapter 9 that we're going to look at today. How many of you are lost already? Okay, you're lost already. Okay, just remember it's, a, it's the same king as the lion's den dude. Same guy. And the Babylonians, they've been defeated. We've got the Medes and the Persians. It's, they've taken out the Babylonians. That's what you got to remember, okay? And we talk about this crisis of delay. I give you this introduction because if you don't know this, you will miss the whole oomph of Daniel chapter 9, which has like the most magnificent example of prayer, probably next to the Lord's prayer. This is like the most amazing example of prayer that you could ever see in the Bible. If you don't know how to pray, read this thing. I mean, it is just a magnificent example. And what's going on here in chapter 9 is it is the first year of Darius. And we're told in chapter, in verse 1, he is a Mede by descent. This is the same guy as Daniel 6. It's Darius the Mede. Now, be careful. You've got more than one Darius in, this, in the Old Testament. You've got more than one Ahasuerus, which some of your Bibles will use that name there. You've got more than one. So be careful. This guy is Darius the Mede. We don't know much about him. From the history books, they're silent Daniel is the only one who mentions this fellow, as I've talked to you about before. The book of Daniel is very much criticized by modern scholarship because of some of these details, but I think that this guy was real, and uh, the rocks are eventually going to turn up something, and he's only mentioned here. This is Darius the Mede, and this is really important. So he was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. This is the guy who, when the Babylonians are beaten, he is the uh, well, uh, one of the kings there. You have the Medes and the Persians, and they kind of co-lead, and later the Persians would dominate. So in the first year of his reign, Daniel is talking, and he says, I've understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given by Jeremiah. We have a book of Jeremiah in the, uh, uh, in the Old Testament. He's a contemporary, at least in time, of Daniel. And he's basically saying, I've done the math on Jeremiah. And the desolation of Jerusalem is supposed to last 70 years, Daniel is saying. And so he reacts to this. He turns to the Lord and he pleads with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Just Pause there before we look at his prayer. So he's reflecting here, and he says, I've looked into Jeremiah, and I've, I've done my math on what Jeremiah said, and according to his understanding of things, Jerusalem, which had been destroyed, 
albeit destroyed, and the temple destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, that this destruction over Jerusalem and the temple was supposed to last only 70 years. Well, only, but I mean 70 years. In other words, there's a time limit on it according to what he understands from Jeremiah. You say, well, where is he getting this from in Jeremiah? There's only two places, only two choices. The first is in Jeremiah chapter 25. I put it on the reference on your screen there. And there you have a Jeremiah describing that because of the rebellion of Jerusalem, because of the rebellion of the people, there's going to be judgment. And this was the people were warned for years and years and years, the prophet says. You can read it all in Jeremiah 25. And he says, I warned you, I warned you, I warned you, and now you, you've, you've tested my patience too far. Because you have not listened, the Babylonians are coming. I will summon the Babylonians. I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and the surrounding nations. So the powerful Babylonian nation is going to come and they are going to destroy other nations around them. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple. He, God says, I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness from those in Jerusalem, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom and the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. It's going to go dark. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon. Here it is, 70 years. And when the 70 years are fulfilled, I'm going to change things and I'm going to punish the king of Babylon and his nation. And they're going to be judged. So you see that that will eventually happen when the Medes and the Persians take out the Babylonians in the whole handwriting on the wall chapter in the book of Daniel. But he's apparently running numbers here, and he says, wait a second. The Medes and the Persians are in. The Babylonians are out. That means that the 70 years, the, the clock has stopped ticking now, according to what he's looking at here. There's only one other place. This may be the place that I'm about to read that he's actually getting his info from. We're not entirely sure. But maybe he's got it from 25, or maybe he's got it from here, chapter 29. This chapter, many of you know one verse of this chapter. I've seen the one verse written on Bible bookmarks, bumper stickers, coffee cups, uh, screensavers, everywhere. This what You know one verse of Jeremiah very, very well. Many of you do. But the rest of the context is what Daniel's thinking about. And here it is in verse 4 of, Je of da uh, Jeremiah 29. This is what God says. He's, and this is a letter. The context is a letter that is sent to these exiles. So maybe that's how Daniel got it. He's in exile there in Babylon. And this is what he says. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Huh? We're in Babylon. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. But what? We're in Babylon. I don't understand. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. What? Babylon? To which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, 
you too will prosper. It's a bizarre message because what's being said there, again, in this letter to the exiles in Babylon, presumably this is how Daniel got it. Presumably this is where he's getting his math from. He says, you're going to be there for a long time. You should stay there. Stay there. Seek the peace of the place. Build your families. Look for prosperity in the place. Bless, be a blessing to the people around you, even though you're in Babylon, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Don't let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. So there were people and they were saying, you know, the, the, we're in with these Babylonians and we're going to overtake the Babylonians and God's going to overtake the Babylonians. There's one guy who said it was going to happen in two years. His name is Hananiah. And there are all these people saying, we're going we're gonna to get out of this mess. We're going to conquer. We're going to conquer. And Jeremiah, uh, uh, through the inspiration of God, says, no, don't listen to those people. They're a bunch of liars. They're prophesying lies in my name. You're stuck here, and you're stuck here for 70 years, so you better get used to it. It's really quite captivating how Jeremiah says this so emphatically. He says, don't listen to those people. They're prophesying lies in your name. Stick around. You're going to be there for 70 years. This is what the Lord says. Verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon. Ding, ding, ding. So there's a 70. So maybe he's going back to 20, chapter 25, and he's saying to himself, well, the, 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 the land is desolate, the temple's destroyed, and the, then they're supposed to be defeated. That's 70 years, so maybe he's thinking that, and now he's got it here again, this reference to 70 years. So when the 70 years are completed, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. So you're going to come back to Jerusalem. And here's the verse that many of you know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you. I will bring you back to kept, from captivity. I will bring you back to this place after you were carried into exile. So here's Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, 2, 3. And he's run the math and he's saying to himself... Uh, what's going on here? The Babylonians are out. The Medes and the Persians are in. Why am I still here? Why are we still stuck in Babylon? Why is the temple almost a thousand miles away, destroyed still, not been rebuilt? Why is the city desolate? What's going on? And his reaction is immediate. He does not feel good about this at all. He's running the math, and it looks like God's late. It looks like there's some kind of crisis of delay here, and this is very bothersome to Daniel, and he's, you don't see it in the text, but he's clearly asking these questions to himself. Why are we still here? It's like the, the fear that he must have felt would be like, has God abandoned us? Have we done something wrong again? Has he somehow changed his plans? What's going on here? Because this is not supposed to be. We're supposed to be back home. 
and where's our temple? So he reacts to this because he's very concerned by it. And people often miss this uh, if they don't know who that king is right at the beginning. And this is why the detail is there. The captivity this, or the subjugation is over. Seventy years, the dominance of Babylon has ended. So chapter 25 of Jeremiah is this subjugation of Babylon against Jerusalem and the nations around her. Chapter 29 of Jeremiah is going back to Jerusalem. You will go back. And so uh, Daniel seems to be conflating these two chapters and thinking to himself, we're not back, something's wrong. Now, many scholars have thought to themselves that what Daniel's worried about here is that God has actually now multiplied the captivity by seven. There is a place in Leviticus and Deuteronomy where God talks about judging seven times over. And some scholars have thought to themselves that Daniel might have been thinking, we're going to get stuck here. We've done something wrong, and now God's multiplied it by seven. It's going to be 490 years, not 70 anymore. But clearly, he is very, very concerned. Watch what he does. He says, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth, and in ashes. Just some lessons from his prayer when you're in a crisis of delay. God, you are supposed to be here. Where are you? God, we were supposed to be here. Why didn't it happen? It feels like I've been forsaken. It feels like I've been abandoned by God who promised something and the promise is not fulfilled and I feel lost. God has forgotten me. This is a sentiment that's very common for people who are trying to submit their lives to God, isn't it? Probably all of you have felt this at one time or another in your life. I've talked to some of you who have felt that where it's like everything just crashed out from under you. The, the, your legs have been cut out from under you and it's like God has let you down. It's like God is late. Look what he does. He turns toward God, not away from him. There is a movement today. It's going to grow stronger and stronger as the days go by. I'm telling you this now. You don't have to be a prophet to figure it out. There is a movement today of deconstructionism that is, is growing in sentiment and popularity where people who grew up in church and people who grew up in faith are throwing it out. And they're saying, I don't believe this stuff anymore. I, it's, it's turned into mythology for me. I never had these questions answered. There's pastors who are deconstructing. There's musicians who are deconstructing. There's authors who are deconstructing. There's actors who are deconstructing. There's evangelists who are deconstructing. They're saying, I don't believe it anymore because God let me down. I believed in him. He was supposed to be there, and he wasn't. 
And I never had any of these questions answered. And so now I'm deconstructing my faith. I'm no longer a Bible-believing Christian. I'm not sure what I am, but I'm not one of those Bible-believing Christians anymore. Look at the reaction of Daniel. Opposite. He turns toward God, not away from him. He doesn't even, he doesn't even go after God's character. Now, there are some prophets who do that, like Habakkuk does that. In Habakkuk chapter 2, and we've looked at this as a church a while ago, he's, he gets into God's, like, he's going after God's character. He's saying, when it comes to the Babylonians, he's saying, what, God, you want to use them? You want to use the Babylonians to judge us? You will go and use them to you. Who do you, is, he's basically saying, who do you think you are, God, in using those Babylonians? And he's really, he's kind of having a criticism moment there toward God in the book of Habakkuk. It's a great book for that. This is not the posture of Daniel, however. Daniel, he turns toward God. He's not blaming God for anything. He's not losing his faith. He's turning toward God and not away from him. If you get one thing from this message, when you're in a crisis of delay, you turn toward God, not away from him. If you turn away from him, it's going to be very, very hard for you to get back when you want to because you'll keep slipping away. You'll keep drifting away. Because your initial posture was, God is no longer reliable in my life. So I am posturing myself that way. It's a very hard thing to get out of once your posture is set that way. This is not Daniel's posture. He turns toward God and look what he does. It's all kind of stuffed into that one verse. He prays. He turns to God and he prays. Sometimes that's the last thing you want to do, isn't it? When you feel like your legs have been cut out from under you, the last thing you want to do sometimes is to pray. It's the first thing that he wanted to do. And it's, and it's so quickly in this verse, he pleaded with him. He starts pleading with God. What's his plea about? Well, we see some of it for sure, but he, he wants to do business with God. He's concerned. He wants to plead with God. He wants to find out what is going on. Why is this happening? Where are we? Where, I don't understand this. He's pleading with him. He's petitioning God. He's asking God. He's querying God. He's, he's got himself close to God here. Even though he's in distress, he is pleading, praying, petitioning, and he's fasting. A lost art today in the modern contemporary church. People don't talk about fasting that much anymore. Fasting means you stop eating. <laughs> you stop eating for a time, and during that time, you pray. It's not just fasting in terms of not eating. That's kind of like dieting. But fasting is usually accompanied by prayer. And here he's fasting, he's praying, and he has a, the way that he's comported himself, this sackcloth and ashes, this is a, a posture of repentance and confession in that time. So he's not blaming God. He's, 
He's looking at himself. He's looking at his nation. He's looking at his people. And that's his posture. I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed. And you're going to see he outlines things in this prayer about God and God's character and God's nature. And as he's praying, he's contemplating, he's reviewing, he's examining, he's reminding himself of the character of God while he's praying. This is a very, very good way to pray. You start reminding yourself of who God is, and you see it spilled all over the prayer here. Lord, great, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. He's not saying, God, you're unreliable. No, he reminds himself, you keep your covenant of love with those who love you and who keep your commandments. And he starts reminding himself, verse 7, Lord, you are righteous. Uh, verse uh, 9, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Verse uh, 15, the Lord our God who brought uh, our people out of Egypt. This is the thing that God has done, reminding himself of the exodus with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. Verse 16, Lord, in keeping with your righteous acts. Verse 18, give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see. So he's reminding himself of who God is is. And he says at the end of the prayer, listen, forgive, hear, and act. And it's curious because he doesn't specifically say what he wants in the prayer. He doesn't, he doesn't come out and say it exactly, but we know from the context he wants to go home. He wants to be back home. He wants his temple and his city restored, and he's not there. But he doesn't flat out say it. He just goes into this posture of confession and prayer. You are righteous, but this day we are covered in shame. Uh, the people near and far, we've been scattered because we are unfaithful to you, and we've sinned against you, and we've rebelled against you. you. You gave us prophets who told us what to do, and yet we transgressed your law, and we refused to obey you, and what's happening to us, God, it's right because you told us this would happen. And he says, the law of Moses has been poured out against us because we sinned against you. Our city's in desolation because Moses said that if we did these things, if we were Worship these idols if we strayed from you. This is what was going to happen to us. You warned us specifically, and we blew it, and we blew it, and we blew it. And he's asking God to do something and to forgive, forgive, forgive. He's confessing our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Wow, I mean, you were not fine. A better example in the scripture of repentance and confession 
it's even more powerful than when David got caught in his whole thing with the with the the the, the Bathsheba incident and the murder of her of her husband and so on. He has a, a beautiful prayer of confession in Psalm 51. This is even more pronounced than that. It is so deep and he is identifying with his whole nation and he says listen forgive hear act do something do something very healthy way of praying and he's not even specifically asking for anything folks i get concerned when i hear so many ways that Christians are taught to pray, to get something, get something, get something, get something. Book after book, podcast after podcast, sermon after sermon. This is how you get stuff from God. You know, Daniel, he doesn't want to get anything. He just wants God do something. We're the ones who blew it. This is your character. This is your nation. Do something. Wow, what a posture of humility and confession. And God is going to blow his socks off with the answer. I mean, the answer is so strange and so bizarre, it has confounded scholars to this day. On Wednesday night I'm, uh, in our Zoom Bible study, I'm going to show you how that's true. I won't go into great detail with it today. But I'll break it down more on Wednesday. This is one of the most bizarre answers to prayer that I think in the whole Bible, like it's totally unexpected. It's very odd, very strange. You couldn't cook this up. You know, if you're trying to make a fake story about this guy, Daniel, you would never cook up such a strange response to a prayer. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill while I was still in prayer. So he's interrupted. Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision. What's the earlier vision? The vision from the previous chapter, which is a different time, but this is what he's referring to as he's writing. Gabriel had given him an explanation of those two animals in chapter 8. So he says, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, he comes to me about the time of the evening sacrifice, the prayer is interrupted, and Gabriel, yes, that's the Gabriel from the Christmas narratives, is going to give an answer. Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. Oh, it's nice when God gives you insight and understanding in things. As soon as you began to pray, fast, very quick, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Now, consider the word and understand the vision. And I'm telling you, I have spent years trying to understand what is written in the next four verses, and I'm still learning about these next four verses, okay? Consider the word and understand the vision. 77s, what's 70 times 7? Some of you mathematicians in the room. 
Very good, 490. Okay, 490. Remember the 490 thing that I told you about before? This is what gets some scholars wondering. Anyway, 77s, that's 490. Now, this is always interpreted as years here. No matter what side of the coin the, the people are in terms of their interpretation of this, it's always years. So 77s, 490 years. Remember, the temple's in, in desolation. The city's in desolation when this is given here. This is the answer to his prayer. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city, Jerusalem, to do a few things. Finish transgression. Put an end to sin. Atone for wickedness. Bring in everlasting righteousness. I mean, this is a big, big thing. Seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Seems like a big cosmic kind of thing here, almost like, a, like an end of the world type picture here. I mean, everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy. This language is used also in the book of Revelation. And to anoint the most holy place, that's probably referring to the temple. Wow, so you got 490 years to do all that. It's like everything has to be wound up in 490 years. Okay, know and understand this. Verse 25, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Ah, Daniel's thinking my city is going to be restored. The temple's going to come. From the time that the word goes out until the time of the anointed one, the ruler. Now, the way that Christians look at this is we think that this anointed one is the Messiah. So from the time of the announcement of the restoring and rebuilding of the city until the Messiah comes, there will be seven sevens. What's that? All you mathematicians, 49, right? So you had the 490 thing. Now you got 49. There'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Uh, how many sevens is that? That's 69 sevens total, which is 483 years. So you're going, man, this is complicated. I know, I know. He's trying to give him understanding, right? There's an answer to his prayer. So you got 400, if we're reading it right, you got 483 years from the time of the issuing of the decree to rebuild the city until the time that the Messiah comes, there's going to be these 483 years. And the temple is going to be rebuilt Oh, wonderful. Or sorry, the city is going to be rebuilt, not the temple here. The city in, 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 with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death. Oh, gosh. Okay, so the Messiah is coming, but the Messiah is going to be killed and have nothing. All right. Then the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the sanctuary and the city. 
Okay, so city's going to be rebuilt. City's going to be destroyed. Messiah's coming. Messiah's going to be killed. The end will come like a flood. War will continue till the end, and desolations have been decreed. I mean, it's staggering what's being said here. He will confirm a covenant with many for one-seventh. That's that last little chunk of seven years, right? You had 490, but you only talked about 483. So where's the missing one? Here it is. In the middle of that chunk of time, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. If he's putting an end to sacrifice and offering, there has to be a temple there. Well, wait a second. I thought the temple was destroyed. That means it has to be rebuilt. Oh, I'm so confused. You've got a temple that's going to be built and destroyed and then rebuilt. You've got a Messiah who's coming who's going to be killed. And the temple he will set in the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And it stops. Daniel doesn't react. The angel doesn't continue, and it stops. It comes to a dead stop, and then you move to chapter 10. You say, what in the world is all this math and the comings and goings of the temple and the Messiah is coming and the Messiah is going to be killed? Okay, many different versions of understanding of this passage. As I tell you, I am still wrestling with it, and I've looked literally, folks, I think I've spent years trying to understand this thing. But if we're looking at it straight reading, we've got the time of the coming of the Messiah given to us here. And there is a way of, of looking at these numbers and a way of running them that it takes you right to the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. And they teach this in Bible college classrooms all around the world. It's called the 70 weeks prophecy. And the, the death of the Messiah happens. And then the Romans will come in as they did in the year AD 70. And they destroy the temple. And the view of this passage is that the angel Gabriel is giving him a wide scope of the future way beyond what he was even imagining. He just wanted to go home. He just wanted his temple and his city rebuilt. That's what he longed for. And here God is giving him so much more. He says, you want an answer to your prayer? I'm going to give you a much wider bandwidth, so much so that it, you're not even going to react to it, <laughs> Daniel. He doesn't read, there's no re record of how he processes this, how he interprets it, how he reacts to it, nothing. It just stops like a stone and you move into chapter 10, which is dealing with something else. What's the point here? When you take the posture that Daniel took and you have a crisis of delay and you approach that crisis the way that Daniel approached it, God is going to answer in ways that you are not going to expect. He may give you a whole lot more than what you're asking for. He may give you a wide bandwidth way beyond what you could ask or even imagine. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians, but you've got to take the posture that's toward him and not away from him when you have this time of delay. 
in your life. When you face the time where you say, God has abandoned me, what are you going to do? Are you going to turn away from him or are you going to turn toward him? Focus on him. Pray, plead, petition, fast, repent, confess, whatever it is, but you wrangle, you wrestle, you work it out with God, watch what he's going to do. He will surprise you, folks. He will give you something way, way, way beyond. It may take you a long time to figure it out. You may still be figuring it out, but God will be faithful to you. And my, my heart's cry for you, don't turn away from him when you face that moment of delay. It's not if, folks. If you're a Christian in this room, or even if you're not, even if you're just a, a, a theist and you believe in a personal God and you're not yet a Christian, and you have faced this thing of where is God, where is God, where is God, he's late, what are you going to do? It will come to you. It's not, a, it's not an if it will happen to you. Every single Christ follower has faced that moment and sometimes many moments like that in your life. Take the posture that moves toward him and watch what he will do. Why don't we have the band come up and who's ever in the room you want to play in the background, you guys, and we're going to just finish up and close in prayer here today. I, I think that for some of you, you've never really heard of this before. And, you know, you're kind of like, this is a lot of information. But the one thing that I get here is that I've got to make sure that, I'm, that my heart is postured the right way. And when I read this chapter, and I've taught on it, folks, for so many years, many times, this is probably the only time that I've grasped the timing of it and the, the importance of how desperate Daniel was and how he felt like God had somehow forgotten. God had somehow let them down. And I've looked at it for, for years, folks. So if there's one thing you get overall from the whole chapter, what is your posture going to be? Would you stand with me as we close in prayer this morning? Father, we are so grateful today that you speak to us once again through this, this chapter, through this very, very spectacular book and very strange book at the same time. And Lord, I pray for each person, for each household that's represented here. I think of the children and the grandchildren as well, Lord. And I think of this whole, this whole uh, crisis where people walk away from faith so quickly, where people find you unreliable somehow in our time, Lord. We, we, we think we have it all figured out and God is no longer to be trusted and we're just going to abandon the things that we believe. Oh God, I pray you would help people to reach in deep to you, to petition, to plead, to fast, to pray, to contemplate, to remind ourselves of your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives, Lord, when those moments and those crises of delay come into our lives, may we hold the right hand of God, our Master and our Savior, as the winds blow, Lord. May our faith even get stronger, Lord. I pray for the one who, 
who's in this room and they and they may be doubting oh god and struggling so much with with uh, questions and doubts and all these things like a like a turmoil in their minds lord i pray you'd give them peace i pray you would answer questions god i pray that they would find you to be faithful you to be true you to be right you to be holy you to be their god once again to be trusted lord we're so grateful we worship you and thank you lord for your great patience with us we pray your blessing today upon each household in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen Amen. The Lord bless you today. Remember to pick up your kids out in screen number 11. If you're new with us, I'd love to meet you down in the front. Have a great, great Sunday, everyone.